all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. I'm just running out of ideas at this point. Well, so. we're over 100 episodes in, so. <laughs> this is 106. Wow, is it really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, yep. Um, and I'm finally remembering, thanks to uh, your conscientiousness over the past couple episodes where we had reverse bad things, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Bad Things Pod, or email us at all bad things pod at gmail.com. Yes. And you can join the All Bad Things discussion group on Facebook as well. It is now a functioning dis- discussion group. It is. Fun- a functioning discussion group. <laughs> discussion, discussion group. Discussion group. Um, yes, it is. And uh, the only thing is I did, I was like, yeah, whatever, anyone can join. Until somebody joined and then like spammed with one of those um Reply, amen, if you, whatever. So I kicked him out, deleted the post. (laughs) And now people have to answer a question. And the only question you have to answer is what's a a disaster you find interesting. That's it. Like, just, it, it can be anything. Or even like, I'm not sure. Like, just answer the question. So several people have asked to join, didn't answer the question at all. And I've looked at their profiles and I'm like, mm, you know, they have like, 3,000 friends and have weird spammy looking photos on their page. So yeah. I'm like, yeah, never mind. So it's slightly curated now. There you go. So what you drinking today? I am drinking a collaboration of De Steel Brewery, brewery which De I've never heard of. De Steel. Yeah. De Steel? De Steel? It might be De Steel. Either way. Where are they out of? Uh, I'm not sure, but it's a collaboration with Dirty Bowl Brewing, mm. which we know is in Durham. Yes. We've been there several times. Yes. This is the Cross Your Tea Dot Your IPA. <laughs> it is cute. a lemon tea infused New England Ooh. style double India pale ale. Oh, it's a 7% right? With Southern Cross Hops. I don't know what those are. Oh, that must be the cross part. Uh, can I try it? Yes, that's my first taste of it. Not bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> the cats just <laughs> did something outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it isn't. Not for an IPA, yeah. Yeah. We're not generally IPA people, so. No. Um, oh, yes. If anybody hears what sounds like thunder, it's because it's actual it thunder. It is thunder. <laughs> yes. Um, it is. It, it, we're recording this on the 4th of July, whatever. And <laughs> happy whatever. <laughs> I hope I hope we're all happy with what we've done. Uh, but... Uh, it's it's nature's fireworks going off. So I am drinking from the Tessiography Project, Red mm. by Haw River yes. in Saxapaha, North Carolina, which we have been to now. It was yeah, cool. it was. It was nice. It is a rustic saison ale brewed with North Carolina malted grain, red rooibos tea, and red Sichuan peppers, oh. peppercorns. Let's see. Yes. It is very good. I like the red and the smoke in this series. Oh, best. yeah. I have had that mm-hmm. one. I yeah. think I had that when I was there. Mm-mm. No? I had something. I don't think so. I had something that had like a smoky taste to it when I oh, was there. Oh, this isn't the smoke one, though. This is oh. the rooibos. Oh, okay. That's what the what you're, the taste you're tasting is. I would... 
normally say we shouldn't go on about beer, but actually we've gotten some positive feedback from listeners who are very interested in our beer segments. Yes. So, yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> but uh, any other... Ha- oh, wait, I do actually you have housekeeping. housekeeping. Yes. So we are recording this after... The Kishtim disaster episode, Kishtim, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry, uh, disaster came out before and before the Python episode came out. So this is response to um, the Kishtim episode. Okay. So Martha mentioned, Martha, who's been very patient and hopefully by the time this episode has come out, has finally gotten her script. She requested it like two months ago oh. <laughs> and I've just been the worst about it. So, um... She's been very gracious about it. So she said, if you're interested in watching a documentary about that incident, meaning the Kishtim disaster, the lasting effects and life in a former Soviet city, closed city check, sorry, (laughs) and life in a former Soviet closed city, check out the document, documentary City 40, which was the Yeah, it's on, uh, yes, it was. You said it was on Prime, Amazon Prime? It was on that or Netflix. It was on one of them. So, yeah, that, that's interesting, because I had never even heard of that disaster. I had so. never heard of it until I was doing a little bit of research on my own into Chernobyl when the miniseries came mm-hmm. out, and that one came up, like, second or third. It was, like, on a list of nuclear disasters, that and I was, like, sense, yeah. I was like, I've never heard of this. Like, kind of the forgotten one, well, mm-hmm. because it was so long ago, probably. It was so long ago, and it was so, yeah, it really secret. was secret. Mm-hmm. They really did keep a lid on that one, yeah. so. Um. And then Marianne on Twitter said, listening to the Kishtim disaster and the location, okay, now I have to try and pronounce it, Chelyabinsk, Binsk, 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 Chelyabinsk, Chelyabinsk, sounded familiar. I looked it up and realized it's the location of the meteor explosion a few years ago. That's right, too. Yes. I I came across that in the research I was doing, and I I forgot to mention that in the the episode. It's disastrous, but I don't know if there were widespread consequences. I guess I don't either. There were no deaths, but there were a lot of injuries uh, because of glass. Yes, I remember that. Breaking glass. I remember that, and all, um, all, because so many Russian people have dash cams, there was a Mm -hmm. lot of footage. Yes, there was a ton of footage. Um, Fun fact about that day, mm-hmm. there was another asteroid that day that was going to come, I believe, between oh. the moon and Earth oh, that wow. scientists were really tracking. So when this one hit, it mm-hmm. literally caught everybody off guard because wow. nobody was tracking this one. So, But wow. the one that we were tracking, mm-hmm. it was a potential planet killer. Oh, wow. Uh, but it Those come up every now and then. They do. Um but they they had been tracking that one for like fifteen or twenty years or something like that, and oh. it, they said it's come it's it's about as close as it can get to us without hitting us. Hmm. The one they were tracking, and then this other one just comes out of nowhere. It was a small meteor though, the one that hit Chelyabinsk. If but it did enough damage to. If you are one of the few scientists who are tracking and understanding and knowing the cons- potential consequences of like a potentially extinction level event Mm -hmm. or more specifically a planet destroying event like no one's gonna make it right like Mm -hmm. it's gonna just kill the entire planet so whatever um well i guess you'd see it coming if it were that big (laughs) i would see it coming as well as several other people but um would i guess i'm i'm asking like would you say anything or would you just silently keep i've thought about that and uh of all the disaster movies that have covered an asteroid hitting earth there have only been several (laughs) <laughs> There's been many. Um, 
But I would go about it like a deep impact. Yeah. Give everybody a year. Yeah. You, know, you got a year heads up. Mm-hmm. Um, declare, not, well, not necessarily declare martial law, but like uh, President uh, Morgan Freeman <laughs> put in like a... I, I would vote for President Morgan Freeman. I, I would definitely <laughs> vote for President Morgan Freeman. Um, he has a great voice for put it. A, uh, put a freeze on all prices. That would make complete mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, because so people, no jack, because people, and people are still going to try to take advantage of certain mm-hmm. situations either way. There's only mm-hmm. so much you could do, but yeah, I'd give people a, a year be like, this is going to happen. We've known it for a while, but you, we didn't want to panic everybody yeah, you for got more a, than a year. You got a year. So if you want to go to Paris, mm-hmm. do it. If you want to go to Antarctica, go do that. Yeah. If you want to see some girl that you met 15 years ago and yeah, whatever, do, mm-hmm. yeah, do that. Yeah. So that, that's how I would go about it. Yeah. And then my superiors would kill me. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also today, which is the 4th of July, as I mentioned, um, there was an earthquake in California. Yes, there was. 6.4, I think. Or that's the initial. bad. I think that's bad, isn't it? It's, I think the San Francisco. It's pretty bad, but it's not like I mean, yeah. But with the initial reports I read, and this could be completely moot by the time, and like updated by the time this comes out. But as of the time, as I, like I saw it, it was saying that like um, there were people in need of medical help for sure, and there was definitely like damage, but there weren't necessarily like, reports of massive deaths or anything. Yeah, I haven't like seen that. anything on. I, I mean, I've seen like uh, there's been some injuries and stuff like yeah, that, but and, I haven't seen any. And lots of just scariness, like sure. shaking as far away as Vegas. Yes. <laughs> where we'll be going yes. soon. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so that's kind of an ongoing recent bad thing as of this recording. Well, but. I mean, there, there will never be a, a shortage of earthquakes in Mm-mm. that, in that area of the country. So, Mm-mm. and they're still waiting for the big ones. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Anything else or shall we begin our actual? Let's begin. Disaster? Okay. I know you're excited about this. I one. am excited. And I know the, I the don't have to explain possible. myself to you guys. You know what I mean? This is a good one. This one is one of the ones that wrote itself. It's a good bad one. It's a good bad one. Um, it's uh, yeah, I banged this out in one day. It was fascinating and um, gripping, and it's a long one. So okay. Now I gave you a little bit of a hint. I said that this was. You said it was solely American. Well, I said it or... was. It was. It's famous. It's a famous one, but possibly mostly famous in America. I'm not sure how famous it is internationally. But it might be because there was a relatively well-known film made about it in 2006. I have no idea. I was going to say Challenger, but I don't. That, oh, I think no, that no, I no. think that I was want, a worldwide yeah, thing. Yeah, and I, it'll take me longer than a, a day to do that research. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so. going to be a two-parter when we do that. We one. should probably tag team that one like we did. Yeah, um, Hillsboro. Yeah, that'd be a good one. All right. So this, they know it. You don't. Yet. I do not. This is the story. Of the Marshall University plane crash. Oh. We are Marshall. Yes. This is the true story. Never saw the movie. Me neither. Me neither. So, and this I, was I all know new. very little about Same this. Same here. So. It's a fascinating story. Okay. And we get to talk about football too. So sure. <laughs> so, on November 14th, 1970, Southern Airways Flight 932 crashed in West Virginia. Killing all 75 people on board, including 37 players 
of the Marshall University football team. And we'll get into the rest of who was on board, but suffice it to say, it was all Marshall people. Damn. Yeah. All right. So, um, happy this this episode's going <laughs> to, after that downer, um, this episode's coming out closest to our second podiversary. Oh, yeah. We started yes, this podcast right. on July 17th, 2017, mm-hmm. and this is coming out on the 15th, so okay. cheers. cheers. Happy anniversary. Yes. Oh, we also just celebrated yesterday for us, July 3rd, our second wedding anniversary. Yes. So, yeah, lots of anniversaries. Absolutely. <laughs> lots of stuff went down two years ago. Country's anniversary is today. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to do... Like a big-ish disaster. You know, I didn't want to do a deep dive like HIV because we recently did that for the 100th episode. Like, But I wanted to do one that was kind of compelling and interesting and, sure. you know, for our second anniversary. Um, so I thought this one might be appropriate. And, be, and probably a lot of people have seen We Are Marshall. Obviously, we haven't. <laughs> but it was a relatively popular movie when it, when it came out. But, but a shout-out, too, to our loyal listener, Kelsey from West Virginia, who specifically suggested this topic. So, so we'll set the scene. Uh, Marshall University. Have you, have you seen them play at all or do you Uh, know? Randy, Randy Moss played for Marshall. Oh, okay. So yeah, they, they had a little, uh, Oh, that's right. Cause he has a, quite he's from West Virginia. Quite a thick, uh, West West Virginia. If you just heard him talk and you never saw him, you'd think he's a white guy from the trailer (laughs) park. I mean, he has the biggest hick accent for a black guy I've ever seen (laughs) or ever heard rather. But, uh, yeah, they had a bit of a renaissance when he played there because, yeah. Um, he was easily the best player in college football. And when was he in school there? 97, 98. Oh, okay. 98 was his rookie year in the NFL. So right, 96. He's a commentator now. Yes, yeah. 96, okay. 97, I think he was okay. there. And I believe scored a touchdown in every game. Oh, wow. He yeah. played in college. He was drafted high? He was not. He was drafted towards the really? end of the first round oh, because wow. he was seen as uh, somebody with character issues. Oh. Which they weren't necessarily wrong about, but. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely one of the best that's ever played, so. Hmm. Running back? Wide receiver. Wide receiver, okay. Um, So Marshall University is a public university located in Huntington, West Virginia. So United States corner here. Um, West Virginia is near the eastern coast of the United States in its northwest of Virginia, which makes sense given its name, and we'll get into that in a second. And it borders Ohio and Kentucky to its west, Pennsylvania to its north, and Maryland and Virginia to its east. It's also very close to Kentucky. Wait, I already said that. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) The other Kentucky. Yeah, whatever. North Kentucky. I don't know. Um, So, and part of Maryland is also sort of north of West Virginia, too. They're two actually very oddly shaped states. Maryland is the most oddly shaped state by far. But so is West Virginia. It's got like little horns. Coming out of it. It looks like a little chicken leg or something. Yeah, no, not at all that. It's strange. But something, yeah. Um, but yes, Maryland is very oddly shaped. So how the state's got their shape, right? Mm-hmm. You like that show. And then there's another part of Virginia to its south. So Huntington is located in the extreme western part of the state on the border of with Ohio, along the oh, Ohio okay. River. Okay. So it's like right on the border of um, West Virginia and Ohio. West Virginia itself split from Virginia in 1861 when the Civil War started. That's right. So that's when. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marshall is an historic institution. Uh, so in the 1830s, residents of the community of, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, Guyandot, 
or Giandot. I don't know. It's probably a, <laughs> a completely. I doubt it's the latter, latter but and you never know. It's it literally be. spelled Guy mm-hmm. and O-T-T-E. Giandot. Giandot? Giandot. Giandot. Anyway, Kelsey will let us know. Uh, and what was then the state of Virginia. So it, uh, the university actually started so far back. That or the school started so far back that it was in an entirely different state at the time. Anyway, the residents wanted a better school for their kids to go to, so they enlisted a local lawyer named John Laidley to help them organize one and oh, start one. Okay, that's I guess how you start a college, at least back in the day. Back then, yeah. So Marshall Academy was officially founded in 1837, named after John Laidley's friend and the fourth Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, uh, John Marshall. who had just died a couple years before uh, the academy was founded. So, like I said, it it is located in West Virginia, but was originally in Virginia because West Virginia was formed at the start of the Civil War by seceding from Virginia, Mm -hmm. but remaining, it's still um, aligned with the Confederacy. Did it? I think so. Am I getting West Virginia wrong? I don't want to call out West Virginia for being part of the Confederacy if it wasn't. Virginia definitely was. Yeah. So All why right. would they secede Which from Virginia side to stay on the, the same side? Or was West Virginia Civil War? Yeah, I guess I should have said that. Um, it, it was the Union. Yeah. Sorry. Well, why else would they secede? I guess. Why would you secede from... <laughs> I thought they seceded just to become their own state. They were like, hey, well, why don't we secede while we're at it? But no. Okay. So I'm sorry, West Virginia. You were with the good guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Um, neither my home state nor current state was, <laughs> unfortunately. Yours was, though. Your home yes. state. Yes. Well, in, in all fairness, North Carolina was the last state to secede. Well, Okay. <laughs> We begrudgingly seceded, but <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. Okay, <laughs> Virginia was the first, though, right? Yeah. Well, when you have the when you have the state directly to your north and directly to your south, both heavily involved, yeah, you know, there's not really much chance you're gonna have getting out of that it. That would be hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, da-dum, bum bum. Oh, Marshall was closed for most of the 1860s. <laughs> As were many universities, I'm sure. As were a lot of things. Yeah, um, because of the war. It was sort of like restarted in 1867 as the State Normal School of Marshall College. And it remained pretty small for several decades. It didn't exceed 1,000 students enrolled until 1920. Wow, okay. So it was just a small school. And it's still, I mean, relatively kind of. Its current enrollment is about 10,000 undergrad it's it's not pretty good it's not tiny no by any means but it's not like a hundred thousand or whatever like some of the huge states division one football well thank you spoiler (laughs) alert (laughs) (laughs) so it became marshall university in 1961 okay marshall university's athletic teams are named uh uh the thundering herd very good that's exactly right thundering herd in um my favorite murder they always make up the mascot of any school they talk about. So Mm -hmm. just just yell out random things like the mighty calculators or just (laughs) silly things. So anyway, but you got that absolutely correct. So, (laughs) so they are NCAA division one. So national college athletic association. It's basically the top tier of college sports in, in the U S. So as it's an historic university, it had a football team now to specify just real quick, we're talking gridiron or North American football, not 
not what we would call soccer. American so. football. American football, exactly. Canadians have different rules. That's true. You're right. Uh, so it had a football team going back quite a ways. Now, I couldn't find an exact reference to the literal start of Marshall's football program, but there was a, like, from what I could tell, it was around 1895 that they started their football team. Yeah, so that's when football was kind, kind of, of came starting, to be. Yeah, yeah. It, it, up in, in college athletics. This is super interesting. In the early 20th century, there was a bit of a controversy when the then head coach, Boyd Chambers, ah. tried a little something called the tower play in a game. Do you know of this? You have I've, good I've trivia a, knowledge of... Uh, I have an idea of what it is, but I don't know specifically. Okay. I'm going to guess they were lining up uh, four running backs, maybe? Mm-hmm. In a, in a V, in a in, inverted V formation? You are thinking very much like smart, what would be controversial today. Listen to this. This is, this is hilarious. So during the 1915 season, Marshall played a game against the West Virginia University. Mountaineers. Very good. Now, smart money was on WVU. Like... To the well, point... Well, of course. Uh, right. To the point... <laughs> what, what? Oh, you didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to the point where the head coach of the Mountaineers, Saul Metzger, <laughs> which sounds like a football coach from 1915, even said to the press he, press he would eat his hat if Marshall scored, let alone won. And sure enough, the game started turning into quite a trouncing by uh, WVU, Chambers didn't want to get completely shut out. Boyd Chambers didn't want his team to get completely shut out in the game, so he called the tower play. So some of this might sound a little too explanatory, but just in case somebody's listening who doesn't really get football, I want to explain. We have plenty of foreign listeners. Well, or people who just aren't into sports or this sport. So they were on fourth down, so it's their last try to make a play before they have to turn the ball over to the other team. Um, and they were on WVU's 15-yard line. So they're pretty close to the end zone, within 15 mm-hmm. yards of being able to score. The quarterback, Brad Workman. <laughs> Brad Workman. I know there are all these, like, 19... <laughs> Brad Workman! Brad Workman with the ball. It looks like the tower play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so he took the snap from the center... Went back to pass. So this was just after forward pass. I was going to say this is just when it became illegal. Exactly. This is just the post-Newt Rockney sort of popular popularizing the forward pass thing. Um, Marshall tackle Oki Taylor. <laughs> sure. And back, they just said back, Dayton Carter ran into the end zone. So to, they didn't specify what kind of back he was, running back, maybe, probably. probably. Usually in college, they call him a halfback. Okay, so they had a, probably a tackle and a halfback mm-hmm. running into the end zone. Taylor, the tackle, literally hoisted Carter oh. onto his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the tower play. Mm-hmm. Workman lobbed the ball Back and high into the end zone. Carter caught it and then fell off Taylor's shoulders into the end zone. I'm going to guess it became illegal immediately after that game. (laughs) Well, so WVU coach I'll Eat My Hat Saul Metzger protested the call. But the officials couldn't find anything in the rule book that made that an illegal play. The forward pass itself was still relatively new. Um, So the call stood. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Isn't that funny? Um, now, of course, it didn't matter a whole lot. WV, WV, 
you, right? Yes. <laughs> I say that right? Okay. One ninety-two to six. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> but they didn't get locked out. They did not. Didn't get shut out. So. Marshall became part of the Mid-American Conference of the NCAA in 1954, and in the 1960s, things did not go well for their football team. They weren't winning much, and they had multiple zero-win seasons, so just Mm. complete shutout seasons. Winless. Winless seasons. And, oh, that's true, because that would indicate that they were shut out in each game, which Mm -hmm. that's not true, necessarily. I, I don't think it is. So... In 1962, their stadium was condemned for health and safety violations. Oh, wow. Okay. So things were just not going good. Uh, by the end I of- guess they figured nobody's showing up to see us play anyway. <laughs> right? So why not? So we might as well feed them those month-old hot dogs that we had them back. <laughs> by the end of the 1969 season, Marshall was on a 27-game losing streak. Ooh, wow, and shit terrible. started going down with the NCAA. So in the offseason... Uh, Perry, the, uh, wait, I, I didn't even explain who Perry was. Damn it. (laughs) He was the, I took that bit out. The head coach at the time. Sure. Uh. Chuck Perry. It's not Chuck, but it's somebody Perry. Jim Perry. Damn it. What is his name? Dan Perry. No, it's none of those. I thought it was Perry Lee Moss or Leap Moss Perry. Anyway, we'll just call him Perry. We're just like Madonna <laughs> Coach or, Perry. or Rihanna. Coach Perry. There we go. Head Coach Perry was suspended, as were other coaches in the Marshall Athletic System and the athletic director, after the NCAA and the Mid-American Conference both suspended Marshall indefinitely. It ended up being one-year probation um, for recruiting violations. And allegedly making payments to some of them. I was going to say, it would definitely be more than, yeah, it's, yeah. Pay, it's paying paying money. Right. So, um, again, real quick to explain here, in the U.S., there's a lot of controversy over the nature of, quote, amateur athletics yeah, these, in college. These guys aren't amateurs. It, it's, especially in football, and it's a, it's a huge just thing, and the NCAA is the one who enforces all the rules, whatever, whatever. So... Now, so they were able to play the following season. Apparently, I couldn't find much more detail about their suspension, but they were still able to play. They were able to play the following season. Okay, after the year-long suspension. No. They were playing during the year-long? They played the 70 season. Okay. So, but apparently, I saw some reference to, like, they weren't playing the teams they would normally be playing, or maybe they had to convince certain teams to play them because it wouldn't count towards their season. I honestly don't know. There was just not much information on this. Okay. So, um, it was, it was for the 70 season. That's all I could find out. So, it was, the timeline was weird. I, I couldn't quite figure it out. So, the only thing I could find reference to was there was a thing for the school paper that they were playing as a quote major independent team, which I don't know. Well, maybe they got kicked out of the conference for a year. That that yeah. That's but they still played. Yeah, but as an independent team. Okay, maybe that's it then for that year. Okay, there's there are still several college teams that are independent, but Uh, they can play NCAA. Notre Notre Dame being one of them. But they can still play NCAA Paul? Oh, yeah. Well, they can play other teams. They're just independent means you're not in a conference. That's all that means. Well, see, they weren't even in the NCAA. They were suspended from the whole association. They were suspended from both the conference and the association. 
Okay. Uh, anyway, yeah. it, there's just because of what happens next, the information about that suspension is barely mentioned most of the time. Sure. But uh, and it's probably probably information they've tried to bury anyway. Yeah. Right. So in spite of the troubles on and off the field, the university didn't give up on the football team. They renovated the previously condemned stadium and increased its capacity to 15,000 uh, people. And the, the name of the stadium is Fairfield Stadium. They installed brand new AstroTurf Field. Interesting. Yeah. I imagine that's they were relatively early adopters of that. I didn't probably. I didn't go into when yeah. AstroTurf was invented, but um, whenever the Astrodome was built is when it was invented. Oh, okay, because that's what it was named after. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Four days before the start of fall practice for the 1970 football season, 30-year-old defensive line coach Rick Tolley was named the acting head coach of the Thundering Herd football team. He was thrilled. The players were not. Sure. <laughs> Apparently. Tolly was a bit of a hard ass. Well, and yeah, he's a college football that coach was not in the appreciated. 70s. Um, 28 of the Marshall players petitioned the governor of West Virginia, Arch Moore, <laughs> okay. to reinstate Moss. Oh, Perry Moss. That was oh, his there name. we go. <laughs> As coach. Uh, Tolly, on the other hand, was very much lobbying to be made the permanent coach. Unfortunately, Neither of those things ended up happening. Oh. So, uh, in spite of the rocky start to the 1970 preseason, Tolly managed to lead the team to break their losing streak in the opening game, winning a 17-7 victory over Moorhead State in oh, a home okay. game. And then that was followed by a very, yeah, <laughs> golf clap. Yeah, because it was followed by a very bad loss at Toledo. Well, hey, they broke the losing streak. (laughs) A win at Xavier University, which will come up again. A string of home losses to Miami of Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, Louisville and West Virginia, or sorry, West Michigan. A close loss at Bowling Green, and then a win at home against Kent State. So that okay, was so they, they pretty they much play teams from Ohio for yeah, the most like, part. Yeah, like very regional. And like you said, it's right, right next to Ohio mm-hmm. pretty much where the school is. Well, Michigan, Kentucky as well. So. No, I'm, but mostly. Yeah. Like yeah. All, pretty much all those mm-hmm. other schools were Ohio schools. Now going into their next game against the East Carolina University Pirates, yes. this whole tragedy has a North Carolina connection. ECU. Um, the Thundering Herd had a comparatively respectable record for them. <laughs> Um, of three and five. Yeah. So that's better than... Not bad. It's better than 0 and 27. 0 and 10, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the early afternoon game against ECU was on Saturday, November 14th, 1970, in Greenville, North Carolina. So Greenville is about 84 miles or... 135 kilometers due almost directly east from us here in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. So um, east-ish, central Which I still have never been to. I'd like Greenville? to go there. Yeah, I'd like I to go there someday. Either. I think it's mostly a college town, if I'm not I mistaken, so. because yeah. of ECU. Yeah. Um, and for a distance from Huntington, where the school was, um, it's about 450 miles or 725 kilometers southeast of Huntington. Uh, so it's like a, I looked it up, it's like a seven and a half, eight hour drive, something sure. like that. The Thundering Herd lost narrowly, 14 to 17. And after the game, the team got ready to travel home. Now, typically, when they're within like a 
pretty easy Seven or eight day. hour bus yeah. ride. Um, driving distance away, um, the team would indeed travel by ground, and they almost did this time, oh, but they decided to continue with plans to fly instead, fly home, and they chartered a plane. So is this the... Southern Airways Flight 932. Wow. So, uh, yeah, for early that evening to take off from Stallings Field, also known as Kinston Regional Jetport in Kinston, North Carolina, which is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of Greenville, North Carolina. Southern Airways is still a commuter airline uh, still operating here in the U.S., mostly regional flights to uh, southeastern and mid-Atlantic states, so... The flight was a twin jet engine Douglas DC-930. Now, I'm pretty sure we've talked about crashes with a DC-9. Like, the name sounds familiar. Yeah, it sounds familiar to me, too. And I'm going to say pretty sure because it's been well established that I don't remember anything I say after I've said it in a previous episode. <laughs> I think so, that goes anyway. for both of us for the most yeah. part. <laughs> but I'm... I didn't need the filler, so I didn't go into it. Yeah, they, they, are say, of the, they are of the larger prop planes. Well, it's... It, it's it's a twin jet engine. Oh. So it's not I a turbo you, prop. Oh, I thought you said a propeller. No, I said twin jet engine. Okay. Shows you how much I listen. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't a tiny plane, but it wasn't a giant airliner either. It, it's a 95-seater. So like, sure. respectable. You know, a regional Well, to carry a team. Jet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got to be, yeah. And it took a little negotiation to get the charter because initially there were weight concerns because of the combined load of baggage and passengers. So as a result, Marshall offloaded 2,000 pounds of weight. Now, I did not find any reference to what they offloaded, but I didn't hear about any near misses, so I think it was probably mostly equipment and stuff. That, that would be my guess. They equipment back home yeah. by ground. So. Um, flight 932 was cap- captained by Captain Frank Abbott and First Officer Jerry Smith, and then two flight attendants named Pat Vaught and Charlene Pote. And then there was another Southern Airways employee on board, Danny Deese. He was an um, administrator for the airlines, and he was on board to coordinate the charter. So he was like the guy who struck the whole deal and everything, and he ended up on the plane as well. Everyone and the crew, the pilot, the first officer, were qualified, certified, experienced. No issues there. Now, the remaining, so that's five, five, well, four crew and one airline employee, right? The remaining 70 people on board were all related to the Marshall football program. Sure. Which is why I didn't call this episode Southern Airways Flight 932. I called it the Marshall University plane crash because initially I didn't realize that the entire plane was filled with Marshall people. Like, it was just the crew that wasn't. So this was all Marshall University as opposed to, like, Sabina Flight five. 48 or whatever, which carried the U.S. figure skating team, but there was lots of other people on board. Yes, there were. So, not in this case. So, 37 of Marshall's 58 active roster players were on board. And then... Okay, I was just going to ask, not mm -hmm. how many, so not all of them, obviously. Not all of them. um, I guess the rest took the bus home? We'll get to them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um... Five other passengers were coaches, so head coach Rick Tolley, offensive coordinator Jim Shorty Moss, offensive line coach Al Corelli Jr., kicking coach Deke Brackett. You don't hear many people named Deke anymore. Not anymore, no. And defensive backs coach Frank Loria. 
two athletic trainers, uh, the Marshall Acting Athletic Director because of the NCAA scandal, uh, Charles E. Kautz, and 25 boosters. So essentially like okay. alumni, prominent mm-hmm. people who support a school's athletic program in attendance through yeah. donations. The guys that pay the players. Well, that's why there's rules about <laughs> But they weren't in the NCAA this year, so maybe they were. Yeah. So they were all on board. So Flight 932 took off from Kinston at 6.28 p.m. Now, there were also references of it taking off at 6.38 p.m. So, but the official report ended up saying 6.28. So, okay. uh, on the evening... So, at, at, oh, okay. 6.30, I was gonna say at basically, night. yeah. Yeah, evening, especially in November, right? <clears throat> it's, it's, it's definitely pretty night. dark by yeah. then, yeah, in this area. Uh, the flight itself was relatively uneventful. They took off fine. They were headed to West Virginia just fine, and it was pretty short because right there, it's if it's, in yeah, it's less only four hundred like miles. Hours drive, yeah, so four hundred fifty miles, an, an hour, hour. Yeah. flight. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was expected to take just shy of an hour. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, do, 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 do. Uh, and it's going to Tri-State Airport, which is also known as Milton J. Ferguson Field, which is just outside of Huntington. It's a, a mm-hmm. Uh, regional airport, I believe. At 7.23 p.m., the crew established contact with the air traffic controllers at Tri-State to let them know they were beginning their descent into the airport by lowering to 5,000 feet. And the crew asked, what kind of weather you got down there? That's a direct quote. Um, And the controllers advised the crew that there were some visibility issues in the area due to ground fog and smoke. Shortly thereafter, good. the crew advi- were saying, hey, actually, it's looking like it's clearing up a little bit. A little bit after that, air traffic control advised them again that there was rain, some light rain, fog, and smoke. So, at 7.34 p.m., Flight 932 was approaching the Tri-State Airport from the west, so I guess they're kind of coming around for an approach, and they were given clearance to land. So the plane started descending per procedure. Now, it was supposed to lower to 1,240 feet and stay there as it started to approach the airport. But the plane ended up descending an additional 300 feet and then continued its descent. So it was flying lower than protocol. Sure. Essentially at that point. Workers at the Ashland Oil Refinery across the Big Sandy River in Kentucky saw the plane overhead. Now, they lived relatively close to this airport. They were used to seeing planes fly. The witnesses were like, yeah, everything looked fine. The only thing was it actually looked like it was maybe a little low. So it was even observable that it was potentially a little bit low. Um, But otherwise, it seemed fine, like it wasn't spinning or doing anything crazy. So... Uh, one witness, and the, the crash was witnessed, and um, one witness stated that they heard a, quote, increase in jet engine noise, end quote. And then... Probably trying to pull up. At 7.36 p.m. local time, Southern Airways Flight 932 was witnessed dipping to the right, almost completely inverting, oh. and then crashing nose first into oh. trees on a hill about one mile west of the runway they were headed Jesus, for. Jesus, so they were right there. The plane immediately burst into flames, 
and it scorched the ground for an area of 25 feet wide and 279 feet long, or 29 meters by 85 meters, which isn't all that far from the dimensions of a football field. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Damn. Um... Air traffic controllers in the ATC tower at the Tri-State Airport saw the saw a glow, a red glow to the west. Uh, none of the 75 people on board survived. They were almost certainly killed instantly, so small favors. And the wreck I, I, ho- I hope so for their sake. The wreck was so bad that most of the fuselage of the plane, so the body of the plane, had been completely burned or disintegrated. It was basically melted away. Mostly only pieces of the nose and the right wing remained. Now I've been neglecting to show you pictures in the meantime, so here's a couple things. This is the the 1971 team. team. Okay. And then that's Rick Tolley. That's the coach. He looks like a coach. College football teams were a lot smaller back then. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's probably, looks like there's maybe... 50 guys? 58, remember? Oh, 58. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, I don't remember. <laughs> but now now on Division One teams, there's like 90 players. And an eight coaching staff, it mm-hmm. looks like. No, yeah. that was not Thunder. That, that was, was That was a gunshot. <laughs> no, it was fireworks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Why is that funny? What? <laughs> I was like, that's not funny. Because <laughs> you said I you were w- kidding. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be funny. I was oh, just like, oh, gunshot. Yeah, you can kid and not be funny. <laughs> Okay, so here's here's something that's not funny at all. Oh God! The wreckage. Jesus, there there's nothing left of no. this fucking thing. Just the um, part of the nose yep. and part of the wing. Yeah. God damn. So within a few hours of the crash, police had been able to recover 15 bodies, but then they had to. I'm surprised they even. Then they got had to back far. off. Yeah. And they had for a while because they had to fully control the fire. A makeshift morgue was set up at the National Guard Armory at the airport, and confirmation of the of you know identifying who was who was a slow process due to the difficulty of identification because of the state of the remains. Sure. So basically, it was because it was so slow. It was like every day, different people were getting notified that mm-hmm. they had identified remains. In the end, six of the Marshall football players could not be conclusively identified. Mm. It was just known that, well, these are the rest the, of the six. They were six. on the flight. We just don't know who is who. Jesus. Yeah. So, on to the investigation. Obviously, the question remained, what the hell happened to Flight 932 that made it crash into the side of a hill a solid mile away from the runway? It was actually clear from the start between um, uh, because they they were able to recover the cockpit voice recorder, the CVR and the flight data recorder. And through witness eyewitness accounts, it was pretty clear that the main issue was that they were flying too low. And the question was, why were they flying too low? So the crash was immediately investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB. And it took almost two years for the final report to be released. Well, like a year and a half. Um, April 14th, 1972 is when this report was released. So the cockpit voice recorder recorded the conversation leading up to the crash. And the recording itself ended with the sound of impact. So air traffic control's last communication with the crew ended with them advising 
on their landing, like everything was pretty status quo. The cockpit microphones continued to pick up the cruise dialogue after that. So, like, it was still being recorded, just not over the, um, not intercom radio. Mm-hmm. It was it was microphones. Uh, so, at one point, Captain Abbott commented, quote, <clears throat> this autopilot ain't responding just right. Sluggish. End quote. Which First Officer Smith agreed to. Uh, he was like, yeah. Later, Smith commented that they were, quote, a thousand feet above the ground, rate and speed good, end quote. And then he commented, quote, speed a little fast, end quote. A little later, the operations employee of Southern Airways, the guy who negotiated the charter and was on board, like the fifth member of Southern Airways, but who was not a crew member specifically, but he was in the cockpit with the, um, so he wasn't just sitting in a regular seat, he was sitting in the cockpit, and he, so obviously he had flown plenty because he said, quote, that'll be a missed approach, end quote, which indicated that even he was seeing, we're not going to make this on our first landing. We're going to have to circle back sure. around and give this another try. So it, uh, it, it indicated that the crew figured they overshot their landing. They were going to circle back around for another go. So the last of the dialogue concluded with Smith saying, quote, 126, end quote, and then right after yelling 100 and being interrupted by the sound of the crash. Was he talking about how high they were in the air? Well, I didn't really see. 100 meters, 126 meters? It could have been speed. I don't know. They didn't really indicate what they were talking about. Okay. Uh, It wasn't wasn't 100. Well, I don't know. No, I mean meters. I think that's how they would go. Yeah. So... To no one's surprise, the NTSB report concluded that the cause of the crash was, quote, descent below minimum descent altitude during a non-precision approach under adverse operating conditions without visual contact with the runway environment, end quote. So that just means... Um, it's a very long way of saying that they missed they were, their initial rep- approach. And no, 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 it means okay. they were flying too low. Okay. That's like the main thing. A non-precision approach we're going to get into in a minute. Adverse operating conditions was that it was poor visibility. And without visual contact with the runway environment means they they weren't able to spot the runway. True, but... We've got more to go. Okay. So, So the crew was properly trained and certified. The airplane had been properly maintained, was perfectly airworthy. There was nothing that could be found... All the records for maintenance were kept properly. So there was nothing like, um, oh, well, remember like in that, um, (laughs) I really don't remember once we record an episode, the bathroom issue in the one plane, the electricity in the bathroom that started a fire. That was the, uh, Uh, that was Air Canada. No, it was the one that was going from like, uh. Um, <laughs> well, it, it wound up catching on fire on the ground. Yes, it. yes. And yeah. most people, or a whole bunch of people died mm-hmm. on the ground in the fire. Yeah. So anyway, but that was... <laughs> that one. Yeah, but that one was like, there was records that there was poor... Was it that one? or Anyway, you know, we've them. had ones. Go back, dear listeners, and, <laughs> and sift through all, all our plane disasters. Let us know. <laughs> there's about 10 of them, and you can tell us which um, one it was. But anyway, there ha- we've covered episodes where it's been faulty maintenance or just piss-poor, like, uh, judgment calls mm-hmm. being made about parts <laughs> like or whatever. Letting, like letting your kid take control well, of the plane. Well, that would be a big one. <laughs> of the plane. 
Um, but that was not the case here. In the end, the NTSB could not conclusively determine what exactly caused that descent below MDA, minimum descent altitude. But they put forth two possible explanations. One, that the crew had not correctly used the instruments in their cockpit. Or, or, did I say one? Yeah. You started (laughs) with two, actually. Did I start with two? (laughs) Or one? (laughs) We're working working backwards. backwards. Um, The altimetry equipment itself was faulty. Well, the one guy said that the, the autopilot wasn't working correctly. It didn't feel right. Okay, yeah. Um, they never came up with any reason for that as far as, like, the autopilot went. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't find a faulty autopilot sure. m- method or thing, but, yeah. Well, the, the freaking thing is in pieces. There's no... Well, yeah, yeah that's... There's no... Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's no... Uh, but they were able, well, because part of the nose of the plane mm-hmm. um, made it through, they were able to um, recover the captain's barometric altimeters. Okay. So what would be telling them what their altitude sure. was. And they, they, they found them. They took them to the manufacturer's facility to basically be dissected to see if they were faulty at all and analyzed. And it was concluded that it was possible that the altimeters readings were 300 feet off. Oh, Remember yes. that they They're had dipped 300, 300 feet. feet too low? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, that's a pretty serious malfunction in, in an altimeter. Y- yes. Yeah, yeah, that's its only job. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that would explain it, right? Problem was, it's also po- possible that the altimeters were off because of the crash. The crash busted the altimeters, made them look off. However, I would like to posit that it's awfully convenient that they were almost exactly 300 feet too low. That's exactly what I was thinking. the altimeters were reading as 300 feet too low. So, the one guy sitting there is like, Jim put this thing together, not me. Mm. Well, and uh, but but they couldn't even blame like well, there's manufacturing no... or anything. because I mean, this plane had flown before. Sure. So it... And this had never happened, so... And I'm guessing they also... I don't know if you cover it, but I'm guessing they probably also went through, like, the service schedule and right, maintenance exactly. schedule. Right, maintenance records. And, like I said, yeah. the maintenance records were all fine. Yeah. I did also see... Apparently, one source also indicated it was possible that water had somehow seeped into the altimeter, throwing it off. But again, that, again, that couldn't it's be all, proved these conclusively. Are all, these it, are all theories. Yeah, exactly. Now, the other possibility was that the crew... Um, wasn't actually relying on the barometric altimeters, which is what they dissected, but rather the radio altimeters, which use radar mm-hmm. to determine altitude. Problem is, they were in West Virginia. What is West Virginia known for? Oh, mountains. Lots of mountains, lots of hills, right? Uh, the Appalachians, right? Yeah, unless they get blown off. But anyway, that's a different story. Well, well, yeah. Mountaintop <laughs> removal. Yeah. Um, so I don't in, think they were doing that in 1970, though. I, I hope, don't I know. hope not. I don't know. So in the very hilly t- and tree-filled terrain of West Virginia, radar, radar altimeters can be fu- become very inaccurate. Sure. It's not properly reading the altitude. It's not flying over Florida. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, where everything's flat. But here's the thing. Abbott and Smith were well-trained, yeah, well-qualified, 
and knew that. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood, even the NTSB said, look, this is technically possible, but we really don't think that's what happened. We just have to posit it as a theory, but the chances of that being the case are, are pretty low. Yeah, pretty So remote. essentially, uh, like the NTSB report concluded, look, it can be one of these two things. Pilot error, essentially, right? Crew error or faulty equipment. We really don't think it was crew error, but I'm gonna we can't go, rule it out. I was going to say, I'm going to go with faulty it equipment It looks on this like one. faulty equipment, but then even if it was, they couldn't determine why. Sure. So it was just highly unsatisfying, right? They, they couldn't... Well, I mean, this thing is just... I mean, there's nothing left of this plane, pretty much. Well, because it slammed. It, yeah. They were not expecting a hill to be there because yeah. they didn't think they were that low. And they could barely see, probably. I still, like, when we go, especially when we go into plane crashes, the people who have to piece the, that back oh, together. And, and, like, I can't even imagine. Like, where do you start? Well, obviously, you start there, with the... They call in a very specific crews of people mm-hmm. who, who are investigators who specialize. You in start this. with the black box, obviously. Well, That's trying to find them, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Um, but from what what do you do from there? Like, really, what do you do? That like, You know what would be an incredibly fascinating conversation to have? Is we should try and see if we can interview a plane crash investigator. I don't think I want to know. Really? Yeah, I don't think so. I think obviously, they won't give us any gruesome details. Well... But- uh, well, but, yeah. you know, because, you know, they're seeing things that oh. people shouldn't see. Well, I mean, somebody's got to recover those bodies. Oh, I know. Those but investigators are on the scene like that. They're yeah. not recovery workers. No. But yeah. But yeah, the the art, I guess, of putting a plane back together. They're not physically putting no, it back together. They but, have to but, determine I mean, how each piece got where it was. Yes. That's yes. I can't. Oh, I, it, I can't imagine doing that. A, a huge. How do you do that? Well, there's procedures, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, it's just horrible that, like, you. it would be awful to be like, oh, I'm getting a call from work. <laughs> and just like, you know what that means. That would be horrible. So the exact cause of the low altitude descended to by flight 932 remains unknown. It does seem likely it was faulty equipment, but it can't be proven, essentially. Nobody knows for sure. Um, but what is considered pretty conclusive based on the cockpit voice recorder transcripts was that the crew was almost completely unaware of how low they were flying until the very last second. So um, they likely knew they were unable to land on the first attempt and were going to get ready to circle back around. Yeah, I mean, so it's... that's that's all. Now, I guess, again, small favors. Nobody was really panicked in the last seconds, except for that first officer who, by yelling, seemed to indicate. But still, that was just it happened. Yeah, just they crashed like right after. So, in in it, that kind of reminds me of Erebus, which also mm-hmm. uh, slammed right into the side of a mountain under poor visibility conditions, much like this. So, I mean, if you have to go, let's hope it's just quick. like that. Quick disintegration. That's that. You know, it's horrible, but the NTSB made three recommendations as a result of the crash. So first, a, three, <laughs> no, one. For the audience. Yes. She held up three fingers. I did. <laughs> three. That was one finger. Uh, additional caution and attention should be paid to, quote, crew coordination and vigilance during non-precision approaches, end quote. So to get into the non-precision approach, 
Non-precision approach is when guidance is given for latitude but not altitude. Okay. So that there should be uh, additional um, visualization and assistance when there's not as much guidance about altitude. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Uh, two, that the potential need for use for using ground proximity warning devices in aircraft should be investigated. In other words, if you're getting too low to the ground, there should be a giant alarm in the cockpit that says, motherfuckers, you're getting too yeah, low to the ground. It's, yeah. So. I thought there were on most of those So me then. too, but I think. A collision think warning system. But I think that may have happened later. This is 1970. Sure. I feel like we talked about that at some we point. We have in one episode. But I feel like it was maybe later. Okay. So anyway, I don't know if anyone else can remember it. <laughs> um, and third, that the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, be extra vigilant when ensuring that proper information is given to crew members so all known hazards of a flight are being considered. Now, they're not specifically saying that any of those things could have prevented this because if it was faulty equipment it's possible this could have happened in spite of those things these were more clarifications like sure. look just try to do everything you can in conditions like this so so the aftermath of this story is what um the we are marshall movie is about apparently okay. this movie basically starts at, after the plane or crash. at the plane crash okay. yeah uh, apparently the guy who played the coach, Tolly, was even uncredited. So he must have appeared so quickly that, like, he didn't even... Anyway, I again, I have not seen the movie, but um, it appears to start where Matthew McConaughey and Matthew Fox can become very inspiring, so... Um, I don't know about Matthew Fox, but <laughs> certainly Matthew McConaughey can be very inspiring. Uh, apparently, uh, the reception to the film was kind of like eh. well, is, but they yeah. said that Matthew McConaughey was rousing and brilliant so. of course well he's Matthew McConaughey he is Matthew McConaughey just when he walks around he's rousing and brilliant Texas's favorite son <laughs> I think he's from Texas <laughs> he is anyway. he went to UT ah he is a longhorn oh I was gonna say go fighting go longhorns. fighting longhorns <laughs> so obviously this crash was incredibly devastating not only to the I mean, we're talking the friends and family of 75 people. Well, plus a, a town. Yes, yes, you know? exactly. I mean, uh, and a state, I would guess. The, the uh, state, the town. A region. And a, and a college. They're, they're essentially in a tri-state region, like they said. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, so. absolutely. And not only had over half the football team just been wiped out like that, along with like more than half of the coaching staff, but many prominent alumni died. Sure. Too, including a state legislator, oh, a city okay. councilman, and several doctors. So professionals. These were boosters. So mm -hmm. they were mostly people who could afford to travel on a plane with the team. You know, they were um, they they were well respected, most likely in the community. So. 70 children lost at least one parent in the crash, wow. which is amazing considering half of the people on board were under 22 or 22 or younger, most sure. likely. So they but probably didn't even college, have kids. Well, college kids were having kids well, back then. I guess then. that's they possible. Were. That's possible. But, but that, that wasn't, I don't think that was necessarily I guess rare not. in and it, and it was a varsity team, too. Mm -hmm. So they were older players for college. So, yeah. Um, and 18 children were orphaned. 
That's, wow. That's terrible. So obviously there were couples on board as well in the boosters. How the fuck? Wow. I I wouldn't even, yeah. I'm not even going to think about it. The, so Marshall University, local government offices, even local businesses um, shut down temporarily. Sure. Just Marshall University called off classes, you know, in the days following the crash. The day after the crash, November 15th, a memorial service was held at the Veterans Memorial Fieldhouse, which was an 8,500-seat arena on campus, basketball mostly. And the following week, another service was held at Fairfield Stadium, at the football stadium. So with 75 people dead, and at least 70 of whom were local to the area Mm -hmm. and to Marshall, uh, that was a lot of funerals. So much so, so so that they had to coordinate the funerals. Oh, I'll bet. To make sure they weren't overlapping because people were going to all of them. Can you imagine going, <laughs> going to, to like 70 funerals or something Fuck like that? that. No that way. I don't know where the crew was from. It's possible they were local to West Virginia, but oh, they were also, you know, so it, it depends. They could have also been from North Carolina or somewhere in the southeast or mid-Atlantic. So um, a mass funeral was also held uh, and the six unidentified players were buried together. Near Marshall University sure. at Spring Hill Cemetery. Yeah, as, that, makes, that makes sense. And where a lot of uh, the other victims were also buried. So in early 1971, Joe McMullen was hired as Marshall's athletic director. Remember, the acting athletic director oh, was, was, had died in, mm-hmm. the, in the crash. So he hired an assistant coach from Georgia Tech, Dick Bestwick. <laughs> There's another 70s name for you. As the new head coach of the football team, um, which was a post he had for two days <laughs> before he chose to return back to Georgia Tech. So it was probably like part of a negotiation or sure. something. So, so uh, William Red Dawson was then appointed acting head coach. So Dawson had been the receivers coach for the 1970 team and had been on the trip to the ECU game, but he chose to drive home mm. instead of fly home on the chartered planes. So that saved his life. So I can only imagine the, the survivor's the guilt. guilt. Yeah. 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 From all the people who weren't yes, on the Yes, absolutely. Oh, it gets it gets worse. Trust me. Um, there's one story. Anyway, we'll get to it. Dawson, uh, Red Dawson, managed to recruit 21 new prospects from several different states. Because they're literally rebuilding their entire football team. Yeah. Yeah. Including the staff. McMullen then found a new permanent head coach. So Dawson was played by Matthew Fox in the movie, just for reference. Um, And Matthew McConaughey played, of course, the new head coach. Oh, of course. Jack Langill, who was, I'm hoping that's how it's pronounced, um, who was hired from the College of Worcester in Ohio. Unfortunately, of the, of the fighting Woosters, the fighting Woosters, the Wooster Roosters. <laughs> um, unfortunately, between the NCAA suspension, so they they were. Oh well, that's true. This been, is still. I, it appears that for the seventy one season, they, they were that. they were reinstated. Uh, yeah. They were allowed to be reinstated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the crash, the thundering herd football was basically over. So so much so. That then acting president of the school, so many temporary posts going on here, Donald Deadman. That's not the best name no, for this. No, it's not. But it's D E D M O N. Anyway. Deadmon. 
Dead mom, yeah. <laughs> it sounds words somehow. Uh, he intended to just completely scrap the entire football program. He's like, we're just not going to play football anymore. Period. Well, I, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, I mean, I'm not in the guy's mind. I would think maybe for this upcoming season, but eventually, well, you know, he was heavily lobbied by Langill Marshall students, Thundering Herd fans, and the community to reconsider. So he did. And he allowed Langill to work towards rebuilding the program. Sure. Which I'm pretty sure this is what We Are Marshall is about. Sure. So well, now we don't have to see the movie. <laughs> well, we know the actual story. <laughs> so Langill en- enlisted Red Dawson to help him. And Dawson agreed to return to Marshall for one year. He was like, okay, I'll come back for this season. And the pair built the core of the new team from the players who survived because they didn't travel to the ECU game. So the ones who survived didn't travel at all to the ECU game. They enlisted three varsity players from the 1970 team. Defensive backs Felix Jordan and Nate Ruffin, who hadn't gone to ECU, the ECU game, because they were injured. So think of all the injured players who didn't travel. And defensive lineman Eddie Carter. Now, here's the story that I was warning you about. Eddie Carter had not traveled to ECU because he was late getting back to Marshall. So he was too late getting back to school in order to leave for the game Mm -hmm. because he was traveling from his father's funeral. Oh, man. So can you imagine the complicated feelings of... Your dad died, so you went to his funeral. Your dad's death saved your life your in a strange way. Your dad's death saved your life. And you probably have survivor's guilt on top of it and just... Wow, no. And he was willing to play ball. Like, he was willing to go in on the next season. That's just... Probably, that would just fuck with my mind. You know what? Probably to, to put something else on his mind. Maybe, like, yeah. Like, okay, I have to learn formations. I have to learn my blocking assignments. Right. I have to do all these other things. You said he was a... Offensive lineman or defensive lineman? Defensive. Okay. They were all so de- he's not- the three. Uh, the three varsity players who came back um, were all defensive players. Yeah. So he's not le- learning blocking assignments, obviously, but he's learning uh, blitz assignments. Mm-hmm. He's probably wanting to fill his mind with yeah. anything but. Yeah. You know, like, hey, can we do two a days, please? <laughs> and maybe, uh, and maybe take the beating, like as a yeah. like as a sense of yeah, like punishment towards yeah. himself. There would be a lot I mean, of this is ni- this feelings is, to this process. This is football in 1970, 71. Mm-hmm. Way different than how the game is played oh, yeah. today. Um, so, Not quite the leather helmet days. But, not uh, quite, but this is, this is the period where um, 20, years, 20 years from then, like in the early 90s, that, that's when uh, brain damage starts setting yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So, so he probably wanted to do that just to have something else on his mind would, would be my sense. guess. Six 1970 season junior varsity Marshall players also returned for the 71 season as varsity members. Mm-hmm. So nine former players came back total. Langill and Dawson cobbled together the rest of the team from walk-ons, basically. Sure. Mm-hmm. They had uh, 50 players who tried out as walk-ons, mm-hmm. and 35 of them made it. So it was a 70% <laughs> acceptance rate into the program. Um and they even they're like, they're like that guy can kind of catch like we'll, <laughs> we'll take him. And and they even recruited 
three basketball players from Marshall. Yeah, that makes sense. Who used their fifth year of eligibility to switch to football. Marshall also petitioned the NCAA to allow them to recruit freshmen, which was not allowed at the time. Not back then, no. Mm -mm. Um, And the NCAA allowed it. And then they made it a blanket rule the next year in 1972. So that was short-lived. This is an extreme circumstance. Well, no, but I'm saying then they made it just a blanket rule. Sure, freshmen can play NCAA ball the year after. They probably were just like, okay, let's just do away with this rule. Let's just make it this. So So that was a big... But for the 71 season, they were the only team allowed to do that. Okay. Because they had gotten a waiver. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, they got an, yeah, exem- they got the, an exemption. What is the NCAA going to say? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's nothing you can say. So, on the first day of practice for the 1971 season, Langill read a letter to the team written to them by President Richard M. Nixon. Oh. It said... Dick. <laughs> it said, quote, Friends across the land will be rooting for you, but whatever the season brings, you have already won your greatest victory by putting the 1971 varsity on the field. End quote. I mean, really, yeah. <laughs> they put together a team from, like, basically from nothing. Uh-huh, yeah. And, yeah, it was a big freaking deal that when they were able to put a team on the field against Moorhead State in Kentucky at Moorhead State. That's where Moorhead State is. Yeah. Okay. Um, for their season opener. And they didn't have a kicker at the time. <laughs> they d- didn't even have a kicker. Well, you just take the guy that could kick the ball well, the farthest. Well, here's, here's the thing. They didn't try for kicks. Oh, they just went of, for two-point conversions all the time? Well, I don't think I... I, I gotta say, looking at well, the they had, scores, I don't think they had extra points. Well, and, they had to kick off. Yeah, maybe they, they just had, had, to, had they, somebody. And they had to punt. But were there extra points back then? Because all of these yes. scores oh, indicate yeah. that there weren't. No, like, there all were these extra scores, points. Are we sure in, in college positive. ball? Yes, I'm positive. Okay. And there was also the two-point conversion. Because so all, of these, all, all of these scores sure look like there weren't. Because they lost the game 6-29. to 29. Why would they have... Like, every score... In that I saw in their records were they all have, sixes. They have six because they missed their two-point two conversion. Okay, but like every everything was a multiple of six that I saw. Six and three. Like every score. Well, there was no if they ones had a, or twos. If they had a score of three, then that means they had a field goal. Field goals are different than extra points. I'm saying the extra points always seemed missing in the scores. It was weird. I don't know. I may have to look it up. It just looked... Anyway. So they lost... Getting off the kicker topic. <laughs> they lost the first game, 6-29. to um, And then they quickly held tryouts for a kicker because they hadn't been able to kick field goals, which could have helped them out. Uh, and the position was given to a kid named Blake Smith, who wasn't really into football at all. He was like, yeah, I don't really go to football games or anything. But apparently he was natural enough that they are like, okay, you're playing for us, so... The first home game was the following week, September 25th, 1971, against Xavier University. It was a sellout crowd of 13,000, and Governor Moore of West Virginia also attended. Kicker Blake Smith, brandly, brand newly, brand newly, brand newly, newly, Blake Smith, newly appointed Blake Smith, drew first blood by kicking a field goal. Oh, plus uh, we should. Uh, I should also comment. Not that anybody really cares. Um, kicking was completely different in this time as well. Uh, this is before the soccer style kickers, 
which How'd they kick. They kicked literally straight on, like toe to ball yep. instead of side of the mm-hmm. foot. Gotcha. Well, he kicked a thirty-one yarder. Is that pretty good for back then? Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. The uh, longest field goal in NFL, well, f- the former longest field goal of all time in NFL history, was kicked by a straight-on kicker. Oh wow! What mm-hmm. was it? Sixty-three yards. What is it? Did it recently? It, it get... got broken last year, or the year before. It's sixty-four yards now. Wow. That is a long. And the guy that way. the guy that did it originally played for the Saints. I believe his name was Tom Dem- Dempsey. His kicking foot, uh, he only had a half of a foot. Which half? He was missing the front half of his oh, foot. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to. Pick. He pro- probably wouldn't be able to walk if he was missing the back half. Well, I didn't mean the back half. I was thinking left or right. Like he didn't specify which way his, we're cutting the foot. His kicking foot. <laughs> Yes, but which way are we cutting the foot? We're cutting it lengthwise. We're cutting it in <laughs> you half. You didn't specify that. I was thinking maybe it was in the <laughs> I don't know. What's, what's the percentage on that beer? I'm not even halfway through it, and it's 5.8. I'm fine. Oh, okay, fine. that's nothing. <laughs> I did have a lot of coffee. I'm fine. Today. We're all fine. <laughs> We've. It's been established he was missing the front half of his foot. Yes. <laughs> okay. Was he kicking with, barefoot? Because they used to wise. do that back in the yes, way, they, right? they don't. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. Um, I miss that era. There is <laughs> a, there is actually a good. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. There's a good NFL films on the uh, the era of the barefoot kicker. That's how I know they used to do it because mm-hmm. we were watching that one day. So, the kicker with his entire foot, <laughs> Blake Smith, um, was the first one to to score in the game, and they had a lead of three and zero at halftime. As his pep talk in the locker room, Langill said, quote, you've got it right there, right in the palm of your hand, if you would go all out for 30 more minutes, end quote. I'm sure Matthew McConaughey made it much longer and more rousing, but apparently that was the actual uh, speech or part of it. By the last play of the game, I'm... Not going to go into calling all the plays. <laughs> oh, we're not going to do a play-by-play? Sorry, I thought of it, and then I'm Bummer. like, I'm not going to like recreate the movie. I'm sure they did that. By the last play of the game, Marshall lagged behind Xavier 9-13. to See? Like, they didn't get an extra point with that. and with They had three field goals. Or if a they touchdown. Scored nine, no, because we already know that they were but up three why? to nothing. We already know they were up three to nothing. So if they now oh have nine God. points, that means they got okay. two more Whatever. field goals. I'm done with that. <laughs> so pay attention because this is going to be The other team, the other team had a, 13. I know. had a touchdown with an extra two, point and then yes. a touchdown with I, probably a missed extra point. Or two field goals. Two field goals. Yeah, yeah, that would make more sense. Well, I mean, the other, I mean. Whatever. Let's move on, please. <laughs> Maybe Marshall was just really terrible at extra points because all of their could be. the scores just looked weird. I don't know. They didn't look right. They didn't look extra point worthy. They did not look extra pointy. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm saying. All right. So Marshall's behind nine to thirteen. The ball was snapped just before time ran out. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're allowed to play the play? Yep. Okay. As long as you get it off before right. zero. Yep. So quarterback Reggie Oliver, who was one of the previous year freshmen sure. at Marshall, who was allowed to play varsity, passed to freshman Terry Gardner, one of the people who got the waiver to play, 
winning the game. No 15 shit. 15 to 13. At really? At the last second in spectacular fashion. No shit. And cementing the ragtag young thundering herd into the stuff of legend. Oh, yeah. They, and movies, and that's I was why they say, made this movie. They had to have made that into a movie. Now, yeah. I, Okay, now I get it. Now, apparently, the, where we are, no Marshall. Oh, shit. Yeah, wow. Okay. And that was their first home game, right? So it was a big deal. Um, now we kind of want to see it. <laughs> right? Now, the movie We Are Marshall is named after a chant. Like, We Are Marshall, like the mm-hmm. rallying cry, sure. right? Well, according to Langell, like, people didn't chant it back then. That came later. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but he, he said, he specifically said, because he's still around. Because mm-hmm. um, these were all pretty young coaches at the time. So they're still alive because that this was only, I mean, it was 50 years ago, but still. almost. They were probably in ago. their late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um... Uh, Tolly was 30, the head coach who died. It's very young to be a head coach nowadays. Yes, yes. It's extremely young. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he he met Matthew McConaughey, you know, all that stuff. And he was like, yeah, we didn't, nobody was really chanting that at the time. It came later. But he conceded it was, quote, appropriate for the movie. Well, sure. (laughs) So he's like, I get it. It was drama, whatever. Go for it. The moral victory... It's uh, artistic uh, license? License, artistic. yes. So the moral victory would have to be sufficient because the team went 2-10 that season. Well, yeah, I mean... It was, like I said, just basically a moral victory. Like, yeah. they, they overcame. Yeah. To just be able to put a team on the field at all was a big deal. And just have a, a last-second win like that for mm-hmm. their first game back after this whole thing at happens. Home, a nail-biter, sold-out crowd, the yeah. governor's there. That's you crazy. Can, you can see this movie, like, playing out in your head. So it yeah. makes sense that they did make a film out of it. I would put Matthew McConaughey in every role. <laughs> of the movie? Yes, all of them. Including the kicker with half. Yes, that one too. Well, he he played for the Saints. He's not involved. I know. In I'm kidding. Um, so uh, Marshall would have to wait until 1984 to have a winning season. Wow, that long. They kind of sucked for a while. I mean, they really they were they were terrible the entire time I was growing up. Mm. I mean, really, like I said, when when Randy Moss came aboard in the late 90s, uh, that was kind of a renaissance for them. But he only came to Marshall because he got kicked out of, uh, I believe, either Miami or Florida State. One of those two schools. Oh, okay. Here's um, Coach Langell and some players and staff. So that's the coach oh, okay. over yep. there. Um, yeah, these first three guys right here, these guys all look young. Let me see. These these guys right here. Yeah, well, see, they're all players. These guys are coaches. You can tell. Oh, these? <laughs> like, look at this guy yeah. and this guy. They're clearly kids. Yeah. He could go either way, frankly. Yeah. You know how some people just look older in old yeah, photos? Yeah, and, and he could be like 30, that guy, or 35. But or he, he looks, could be but 20. He looks like, but he looks like he's 60. 22 or, yeah, yeah 65. <laughs> it could be really any length, length of time. That's not a word. So to commemorate the victims of the crash on November 12th, 1972, the aptly named Memorial Fountain was dedicated at the entrance of the also aptly named Memorial Student Center. The plaque at its base reads, quote, They shall live on in the hearts of their families and friends forever, and this memorial records their loss to the university and the community. End quote. Yeah. Every year after November 14th, I couldn't figure out if it was like on November 14th or the next day, but anyway, the water for the fountain, for Memorial Fountain, is turned off. And it doesn't get turned on again until the following spring. Oh, okay. 
Several other memorials can be found in the area and on campus, as well as the guest team entrance of the Dowdy Ficklin Stadium, which is where the ECU Pirates play. Mm. So they memorialized it as well. All immortalize what is generally considered to be the worst sports-related air disaster in United States history. Yeah. And that, my friends, was the story of the Marshall University plane crash. Wow. That sucks. Yeah. Even yeah, Demetrius. A- <laughs> Even Demetrius was whiny there. So, so, so he, hasn't, he hasn't been on in a while. He hasn't. He's hungry. That's why he's whining. Come here. Demetrius. There you go. Hi, there baby. There he is. There he is. Hi, kitty boy. After a plane crash, you just need to hear the, the, the cries of a cat who's hungry. At least we had the moment of brevity regarding the foot. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, it's sad, I, I really... I mean, I knew that this happened, mm-hmm. but I literally knew nothing about it. Never mm-hmm. saw the movie. Same and like here. I said, now I kind of want to see it. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. Um, they said it was not half bad. And if I saw it in... This whole thing happened where they win their first game back at the last second. I'm like, that's I would have been I would have been like, that's bullshit. Like, I'm like, they, that, that didn't happen. Just did that for the movie, and no, no it, it really, really happened. happened. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like you can't. You couldn't you, write you, it. <laughs> you couldn't make if you did make it up. It would just be like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever bullshit. heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, well, I uh, the the movie Rudy. Have mm-hmm. you ever seen that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Long time ago, but yeah. um, a couple years ago, I heard a, an interview with Joe Montana. The quarterback. Play, oh, he was play the for the Niners. He was a freshman at Notre Dame oh, when that happened. Okay. And he was like, he was like, he was like, yeah, the whole fan thing in the movie where they're chanting is he's like, that got a little overdone. He's like, but the rest of it, he's like, yeah, he really? got, he's like, he's like, he sacked the quarterback and then we carried him off the field and he's like, it really happened like that. Oh, wow. And I was like, no shit. Cause wasn't the, like, correct me if I'm wrong, cause this is just what I remember. Sean Astin plays yep. Rudy, right? Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings guy. Yep. Um, uh, you mean, Astin, you mean Rudy guy? Yes, Sean Astin. Uh, yes. I, I consider him of the classic movie, The Goonies. Okay. See, I've never seen The Goonies. We've established that. Shame. Also, never seen A Christmas Story. That's but. an even bigger shame. Um. So he, like, is going to Notre Dame, but he's kind of a down-on-his-luckish kid a little bit, or... No, he goes... Very, he, well, let me, oh, let me sorry? keep okay. going. <laughs> and then he, um... He really wants to be a football player, but he's not really cut out to be one. But through hard work and determination, they let him play one play. Well, he was a football <laughs> player in high school. Okay. He's too small for mm. anything anything beyond mm-hmm. that. He goes to really, every level. Like you get sized out if you're too oh, small, right? Hell yeah. yeah. And if you're and if you're except for very few exceptions, right? If you're not of the size, you better be extraordinary at some type Wes of skill. Welker. Yeah, there you go. There's an example. Um, Muggsy Bogues. There you go. Exactly. Um, that's all I can name. Well, that's two very good examples. Thank you. Um, he goes to Notre Dame to uh, try to, to walk onto the team. Okay, um, now, walk on means you're not getting you're not a, scholarship, a scholarship, right? Okay. Exactly. I only knew that because I had to look it up for this. <laughs> right. But he, um, and he succeeds to the extent he gets put on the practice squad. Now, okay. the practice squad also, non-scholarship. I, yeah. th- I think most of those guys are non There might be a, a guy or two. But he was walk-on regardless, he was. right? Yeah. Um, the coach, when he initially showed up to play there, promises that it'll dress him for one game. Because unless you are on the active roster for a game... You don't even dress. Well, no, you're not a part of Notre Dame football 
ever. You're just a spectator. You're just, no, you're just a scrub. You're just a practice squad. You're, ne- you're never officially part of the team. So when you're in a practice squad, does that mean you just are the person who gets beat up? Yep, that's exactly uh, what it is. You're like a live dummy? You're, yes, that's Ugh. exactly it, even, even to this day. That's awful. Yeah. Um, so the coach that promises him to uh, mm-hmm. dress in one game uh, winds up going to another school or going to the NFL, and then a new coach comes oh, in, and, he's, just like, and no. he's like, yeah, what, what are you kidding me? Well, in all fairness, the, it's not team, up to the one coach to keep the other coach's promise. The team, and they show this in the movie, Joe Montana said this part was not real. Okay. <laughs> but they, but the team lobbied for him, you know, it's it's one game. Just like, let, let, him let, him dress. let him dress. Like, yeah. you know, and he does. And then, they, and then it was like, well, I'm not going to play him. And then throughout the game, the players are like, let him play. Just like it's one. Were, were they up high enough that they're like whatever? Yes. Let him play. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the yeah. game was out of reach. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So yeah. So it, that that's a great story. Um, and apparently the ending to that movie is real. And apparently the ending to We Are Marshall. I'm guessing. I'm guessing that's, I'm guessing that's how. Probably. It's why would you be. write it any differently? Why would it's you? It's brilliant. Ha- yeah. Why would you end it? <laughs> anywhere else. It reads like a movie. I'm <laughs> yes. sure the reason this movie got made is because a screenwriter like well, read the like, Wikipedia article. Yeah, he's like, he's like I don't he's like I don't, he's like I don't have to do anything. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. all I have to do is just Yeah, all I have to do is cast out. it. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey yeah. in every role. Remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was um yeah. Find the front page. Yep. There we go. There we go. That I found, like I said, this one wrote it. it the script, this script that I just read, this five-page script wrote itself. It was so cinematic. Sure. You know, but it is. I mean, there's so few satisfying endings to disasters. You can see why it's made for Hollywood, sort of. You know, and it's not that the disaster ended well. It's that the sort of overcoming and winning one for the guys who weren't there sort of thing. And that probably, I'm going to guess that probably made their entire lives just to have that one win to come back. And that, like, glory moment. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, what is... What else is there to achieve after that? I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking football, national championship, and winning seat. but, But really, in their souls... And in their hearts, they just want really, to win one. really, was there anything else to achieve being on that team? Right. No. You know, so they, they went out and did it. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and ultimate dramatic fashion. Yeah. Snap the ball just before the clock runs out, you know. So that's. Well, and not only that, but. And then, con- and then convert. Pass it to one of those freshmen yeah, who, who were given special right. dispensation because mm-hmm. of the crash. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, ultimately, 70 people from all from from one program. Like I said, that's why I call this the Marshall University plane crash. One, because I want to make sure that people like who are looking for information on this can find it easily and may not necessarily know the flight number. And two, except for the crew who, yes, their, their loss was just as tragic. Sure. Um, all, every passenger was for this university. Can you imagine any university, let alone a university that was, I don't know, somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 in attendance at the time. I, I didn't look up the attendance for that specific uh, academic year, but 70 people related to a single university, yeah. a single anything 
you know? Yeah, exactly. A single entity of yeah. anything yeah. would be... It, it's like um, in 9-11 where certain companies lost massive numbers mm-hmm. of employees because of who, the offices that were in, yep. the, in the Twin Towers. So that, that just is... It, it's a gut punch to lose one person in a community, let alone 70 and then at a have, time. Literally having to coordinate funerals because you have 70 of them to put to on. To make sure everyone can go to every funeral. Yeah. That would just be, oh, what, like. I couldn't, like, I've never been to 70 funerals total. Can you imagine doing that within the span of a couple of days or like a week, however long it was? how depressing the yeah. whole thing. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm sure probably, oh. I'm sure probably by funeral 10, most people were probably just numb. Yeah. Well, and imagine the kid who just got back from his dad's funeral. He's going to all the funerals, too. Yeah. That, I, I don't want to. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be that kid. No I, hope, I hope he went on to have a happy a, life. A nice, happy life. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he was a black man in West Virginia in the 1970s. They, yeah. I'm guessing he had his share of uh, adversity. Yeah. But, to say the um, least. Yeah. That was something else I noticed, like, in the team picture. And granted, it's 1970, but some states were not too mm, quick to no, integrate. Yeah, that's true. I guess um, I didn't there, think of that are, either. But there's a, there's there a decent several, amount of black players. Several black players, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's still a very white-looking football team, which hap- it, that's the funniest thing I, I still think. Like, if you have a team picture of a cur- even current modern-day college team and pro team... Mm-hmm. You definitely see a color variation. It's about it's 75% <laughs> African-American and in 20% white. And then it's flipped a little bit in um, oh, college I don't, football. I don't know. I think it's about really? the same. I, I feel like I see a lot more white faces in college football than I do in the pros. I, I feel know. like they get kind of weeded out in the end <laughs> when they're trying to make it to the big leagues. I, I don't, well, maybe. I don't know. But I, but I do know statistically, yes, the for the NFL, the majority of players are African American. Mm-hmm. I do know that. Yeah. But um. But yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. I guess there. I guess we're at the point where we have to wrap it up because this was depressing. <laughs> it was. Thankfully, had a cheery ending. Yeah, it ha- an inspiring ending, right? Because yeah. I mean, because uh, what else is there? Like and and at this point, this this was forty nine years ago. This was almost, know, 50, almost fifty years, years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Well, actually, it was almost forty nine years ago because it happened near to the end of the year. But True. and also imagine this: November fourteenth is like a week or two before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, and then Christmas. Oh my God, those poor families mm-hmm. and the kids, and oh, that was just horrible. Um, but at least they had their feet. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. There's just I just didn't want to end it on such a toner note. I was just gonna let that one slide. <laughs> Pretend you didn't say oh that. Oh my god! Oh, well. At least it's they just, had. At least they had their whole feet. <laughs> so anyway, just bullshit. Yeah. Let's just move on. That was the Marshall University plane crash. Mm-hmm. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week, and I think we can leave that. And off. we are Marshall. Yes. Well, we're not, but we're we stand in solidarity. I don't know. I should probably just cut it off after that. Probably. <laughs> Happy feet. <laughs>